Hi, everybody. Welcome. Hi. I think these talks are a great respite from uh, the movies. Who's seen the film? Who's seen Gracie's film? Okay, half, half. So we're talking to both, uh, both uh, people with questions from the film and people who may well want to go and see it because it's opening quite soon, isn't it, Gracie? Yeah, it's coming out here, well, around Australia on the 26th of June, so... Yeah. Now, uh, Gracie Otto is a pretty amazing girl, woman, <laughs> she's, because she's been a model, an actress. Then she went to film school, turned herself into a very good film editor, made a number of excellent short films, and now a feature documentary which has an extraordinary range of talent in it. Um, the the uh, film about Michael White, The Last Impresario, is, is uh, also about a man who wasn't very well known, but he made a lot of people celebrities, and he also took a huge punt on talent and took a lot of risks in his career. Um, and th this film, which Gracie persisted in making um, through all kinds of ways, crowdfunding, um, turning her, her income from modelling and various gigs towards it, um, actually has brought him back into the spotlight at the very end of his career. Gracie, how did you meet Michael? Well, yeah, so it's a funny story. I mean, I met Michael um, in 2010 at the Cannes Film Festival, and I was there originally to pitch a film that I wanted to get up. Mm. Um, and then it was just like this random series of chance encounters when I was staying with a friend of mine who got stuck because of the volcano, and he said, I'll go out with this guy and he'll take you out to some parties. And I ended up going to this boat party with this kind of club promoter, and he wanted to know if I wanted to sell raffle tickets. And I thought, oh, well, it was going to be like a thousand euros for the night. And I thought, oh, I'll make some good money. And as soon as I got there, I didn't want to be, you know, the girl selling raffle tickets um, on the <laughs> boat, on the yacht, on this Russian party. And I noticed Michael um, standing there just because he had this, like, walking stick and he, his friend had an Adidas tracksuit on without any shoes on. And it was like a black tie event. And then a few hours later into the party, my friend who had been stuck in Germany um, for three days at the airport turned up. And this guy came over to me and said, oh, I'm going to Hotel de Cap. And I was there, I was in Cannes... Um, a, few, a, a year before, when I turned 21, um, with Matthew Newton, we were there as part of Sydney Film Festival um, when they were launching the competition program. And I went to Hotel de Cap on my 21st birthday and I didn't have any money on me and I couldn't even afford a glass of water. It was like 30 euros. Um, so I knew Hotel de Cap was like the place where everyone hung out and it was cool. So I just went with this random guy in a car um, to the, and my friend was like, you shouldn't go with this guy in the car that you don't know to Hotel de Cap. And he made me walk underneath the train station in Cannes and I was thinking of like Irreversible and how, and then he locked the doors and we got in and we drove for half an hour out in the dark. And then we got to the hotel and um, he was like, I'll get you a drink. And he went to get me a vodka, a vodka lemonade I asked for, which was obviously like 50 euros. And he didn't get any change. And I remember because Martin Scorsese was standing next to us and I was like, he was saying to the bartender, where's my change? And I was like, don't, 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 just like... You know, yeah. And then he's like, oh, look, over here, my, my friend, my flatmate from Los Angeles, you should meet. And that was the guy in the Adidas tracksuit. And Michael was so, there? Yeah, so I just sat down next to Michael. And then he was like, who are you? And yeah. what's your name? 
Yeah, we see in the film that, that he's a quite elderly. He's quite old now, and yet everybody was coming up to him. He seemed to know everybody. Yeah, yeah he had this kind of, I don't know, aura about him. It's um, because he was always really smartly dressed, and he, people would, you know, come to him. He taught me that when I used to, you know, wear high heels. I'd say, my shoes are so sore. And he'd say, just stand there, and then people will come to you, and you just wave at parties. Yeah, hey. <laughs> so, and then the first, second night he took me out on Paul Allen's yacht. I don't even know who Paul Allen was. It was this like seven-story um, boat with a yellow submarine, and he was angry because I wore high heels. And he's like, "We're on a boat!" Like, it, you know, he always knew the right dress code for everything. And it was like, it's you know, it's sand shoes for boats. <laughs> and so I was like this, you know, random Australian that didn't know much about anything. Yeah. But he likes young girls, Michael. He's always liked beautiful women, beautiful. Smart women. Were you his sort of um, candy for the rest of that festival? Well, I think, I mean, I don't know. He's, he was too... I mean, he's... Yeah, I mean, I don't think he was trying to crack on to me. No, I don't. No. I mean, I think he was... He liked the idea that he could... And I, I feel the same way when I meet young girls, like, and I'm overseas at a festival or something, and I like to take them under my wing and show them and introduce them to people and... And do stuff like that. And I, th I feel like that was his way of, you know, I guess also redefining his spot at the, at the festival. He'd been going there for like 45 years. And so he liked the idea that he could say, oh, there's Naomi Watts and her mother and come meet Mick Jagger. And mm. so he could, you know, do all that. Um, and I was obviously so excited by the whole experience of it. Yeah. Uh, did you decide to make a film about Michael on the spot? Or when and how did that happen? No. Well, what happened was that I was in... Um, he invited me to London, and I had only been there for one day, and so I called my mum and said, oh, you know, the old guy I met said to come to London. And she, and I think because she knew that he worked in the theatre and he wasn't, like, a threat, she said, oh, you should go. So I booked this, you know, cheap accommodation, which I learned because in London you book a single room, you get, like, a single bed. So I was staying in this place, like, that was so tiny, near his place, and he took me out to the Ritz and then to dinner and, like, Lucy and Freud was there and I was, like, saying, who's Lucy and Freud? Like, I didn't, you know, I was so naive to the whole thing of London. Um, and when I was there, I had um, a, my family friend, Greta Skarki, who's in the film, she lived in Sussex and I hadn't seen her for a few years, so I thought, well, I should go and visit her on the train. And so I went down there one day and, and just said in passing that I met this really cool old man um, at the festival and she said, oh, he started my career and he put me in my first film and here's his book. And then I think once, because, you know, Michael doesn't talk that much anymore, but once I started reading his book and it was a bit like when you read that, the My Week with Marilyn and it's a young boy and he's um, starting, you know, his career working backstage in films and Michael really started, you know, from an early age um, learning about the theatre and, and travelling and, you know, and I just found that, I always, I mean, I always found old Hollywood interesting, so this was like the kind of theatre, you know, more English mm. side of it um, and it was just an interesting period in time and how continental he mm. was and I think it was also a way for me to see how, to get an insight into his head um, and then so yeah, a few months later in October I went over to, um, I was going to the Rome Film Festival to pitch this film that I was still pitch that I'd been pitching in Cannes um, and I thought I'd stop in London and I was there with my friend at the time who was um, doing, I think, the publicity for Geoffrey Rush and the King's Speech. And I went out to dinner with Michael and just had mentioned on the kind of... a bit of a spur moment that maybe I want to make a film on him and he thought it was funny and kind of said, no, no, no. And then he was like, he's like, where's your friend? And I said, oh, she's at um, the King's Speech opening, but she can't get me a ticket, so I'm just going to go back to the hotel. 
and he was driving around with like no petrol looking for the party because I realised he was like a FOMO he's got fear of missing out and so he yeah he was driving around and yeah we ended up just kind of crashing the party and they were like sorry you can't come in and then someone noticed him and said oh Mr White Mr White come on through and so we were there having a drink and he was saying that he didn't think the party was that good and I was like you weren't even invited like you shouldn't even you know and then I saw Harvey Weinstein come up this like clear glass elevator and straight over to Michael and I also remember because I'd been at dinner with Michael and his walking stick had hit my dress and it shredded this dress I was wearing which was black but on the inside I think it was a cheap dress it was white and so I was sitting the whole time trying to make sure no one could see that my dress was all ripped and then Harvey came over and was trying to sit down next to me and I was, like, talking to him and saying, hi, yeah. And he said, oh, this is a great film that you've made. Um, and I said, oh, I haven't made it. I'm make, making it. Um, so Michael had gone to pitch it to him about getting some money. Uh, yeah. This man, you won't have heard of him, possibly, if you haven't seen, till you've seen the film, but he was an immense cultural force. I mean, it's not just that he was connected and he knew celebrities, but that he was a producer in the real sense of someone who understands talent and who know, has the vision to trust the talent, which is so important in the film industry, and to get, get behind them and to bring talented people together in all sorts of unexpected ways. I mean, he uh, brought Yoko Ogono to London for her first performance. He brought very famous dancers, Pina Bausch from Europe, Merce Cunningham from New York. Um, he godfathered the Rocky Horror Show and had the wit to put it in a theatre, in, you know, an old cinema, instead of... Um, um, you know, a stuffy West End thing and to take this little burlesque thing. He took a punt on Barry Humphreys totally early when Barry Humphreys was Edna Everidge. Tell us about Barry and Edna. Yeah, well, Michael, I mean, Lyndall Hobbs, who was one of Michael's, um, well, was Michael's, like, long-term girlfriend for about 10 years, she introduced um, Michael, I think, to a whole lot of Australians. So it was, like, Nell Campbell and Jim Sharm and Brian Thompson, all the kind of guys from the Rocky Horror Show and Barry Humphreys. Um, so Michael put his show on. Um, but one of the, yeah, he took, it, took him to New York because he knew Lorne Michaels, and Lorne Michaels was the head of Saturday Night Live. But it was a bit of a disaster when they went there because it... Um, yeah, no one, everyone thought he actually was a woman, so they didn't really understand the sense of humour straight away. <laughs> the Americans didn't quite get Dame Edna. Um, the, the British did. Um, did. How did Michael come out of that deal? He, he actually, he actually uh, kept a show open and knew he was bleeding money. Well, I think it was one of those things when Michael had said to him, oh, you know, if you keep supporting the show in London, if Barry, you know, didn't want to, the show to close because it wasn't getting good reviews. So Michael kind of kept the show on on the basis that the next show that Barry did, he would produce. Um, mm. And then, you know, it was one of those things when Barry had, had known other people who were going to produce the show and then it became this, you know, big thing. So I think Michael lost quite a bit of money on that. But I also think it was a thing of the that time, especially the same with Rocky Horror when you're not sure when something's going to be successful. So, you know, Michael did have everything on handshakes and all of that way of doing business and trusting people. Um, and, you know, part of it was his bad 
um, him not being, you know, a tough, a tough businessman, but also, I think with some of those shows like Rocky Horror, like they, they say that you, you know, you never knew that that was going to become this huge cult success. Yeah. So maybe things weren't in contr- in line with, um, you know, like it would be if you knew how much money it was going to make. Yeah. Did did he ever lose out badly, backing talent? Do you think? I think there were lots of productions. I mean, he did over 300 productions, and I think there were a few that obviously made... Like, I, know, I remember, um, we don't really talk about it in the film, but on Sleuth, um, they made... They said it was, like, backing a horse, like, 40 to 1 or something. Like, all his friends who invested on that made, you know, a killing on that show. Um, and then there was another story, which isn't in the film, when Michael went to the casino... I think it was around the time they were doing White Mischief or something, and he had to win, like, all the crew's wages... And he managed to, I think, win backgammon or something and paid for the whole production. So he was like a very good gambler. Yeah. We are going to take some questions in a little while, but I just want to sketch in a couple more things about Michael White. He's quite old now and frail, and he's had a couple of strokes. Um, You mentioned that he was at times a gambler (laughs) and, you know, not... It was uh, not unknown um, later in his career to go to the track to win win the money to keep his one particular show or film going. Um, how did you build the trust to get to so many different people and the trust between you and him when he was so easily tired, has a little difficulty post-strokes with speech, etc.? Well, I think with all the people, like, I mean, I didn't have to build... I think their trust came more from them wanting to give back and say something nice about Michael or, you know, talk about him because they work with him. Um, and I think then it helped when we had a few... Like, I think Naomi Watts was, like, the first celebrity, like, you know, big celebrity to come on board with, on the film. And once she was on board, then, you know, you could say her name and then we had Yoko Ono and mm. then it kind of just, you know... And then everyone I interviewed would say, oh, you, you've got to meet this person and you've got to chat to that person and... And so I was kind of just always put in touch via someone. Usually after I'd interviewed them, if they thought I did a good job, maybe they then would say, oh, look, here's Anna Wintour's email. You know, she should, she should be interviewed for the film. So, I mean, yeah, it was quite... I guess when you think about all the people we've got, it's a quite um, interesting array of cast because they, they all come from different art backgrounds, whether it's, like, you know, music or dance or musicals or artists, um, models, like, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, he really did know everyone. But I didn't know that when I started setting out to make the film. Mm. He, he, when he stre- jumped, when White jumped from theatre to film, um, or went back to it, I'm not sure which, uh, one, of the, one of the things he backed was the Monty Pythons. I mean, that's what I mean yeah. about seeing talent and possibilities. Um, yeah, well, with Monty... Did you find a python? Yeah, well, I, I went um, with Monty Python... Michael put on a show back in the day in sixty in sixty three. They Cambridge and um, Oxford. I think they still do these kind of reviews. And um, John Cleese and Tim Brooke Taylor and Bill Oddie were there. I think studying law. So they never really, you know, they they said that they weren't really out there to be actors. It was just like a fun kind of thing they did on the side. And they put on this show that Michael came to, and then he kind of got them on in the West End. And then there was, I can't remember the other actor, but there was someone from the goodies or the young ones who was at the um, Oxford University at the time. So it was like a really strong year of shows. And I think they got a few of those people over once they started, they toured New Zealand and went to all these kind of places. So I think, um, you know, Michael, yeah, once Monty Python was getting up and running, you know, Michael was someone that they went to because they knew that he 
you know, might back them. But I also heard a story from Nell Campbell that the life of Brian sat on Michael's desk for about a year and a half, and that's how his assistant, John Goldston, picked it up and produced the rest of the Python films. Okay. Yeah. Um, you had another gift from Michael in his very last years when he didn't have the money he used to have. But Michael was a photographer, and they weren't art photographs. They were kind of memories of what, where he'd been, with whom, what he'd done. So he had the most amazing archive of his life in, in photographs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the end, did he have to sell that along with his letters? No, he's still got all his albums. But, I mean, he really was like a hoarder, as um, we say in the film, because he never threw anything out. And I remember my mum saying to me, you know, you're going to have to go with a scanner to London and scan all his stuff and go around to all the people and get them to get the archive. And I remember just thinking, oh, no way I'm going to do that. And then about a year later, I'd bought this portable scanner and we were, you know, going around and scanning all his things, which is a great way because he kept everything and every article. And then I worked with the Gingerbread House in, in Redfern and they did the post on the film and Craig came up with the idea, who's the post-production supervisor, to kind of keep everything in his scrapbook, scrapbook way and having all the articles and everything come to life because I always hated the idea of the name, scrapbook, kind of, I didn't like that and I wanted yeah. to look really sleek and stylish but the way in which we did it was, you know, getting the text to come out, you know, I really liked the kids' days in the picture and the way they, you know, did that. Yeah, but you needed, I mean, <coughs> you had a really good editor, Karen Johnson, you had Nicole O'Donoghue producing, who produced the lovely film Griff the Invisible um, and then you needed, in the end, an archive wrangler because there was so much data. And yeah. I think this is an issue that faces a lot of filmmakers starting out these days and doing first-time films. You know, they just accumulate the most amazing... Um... Yeah, well, I guess the toughest lesson to learn making the documentary... Because when I first got my camera, shooting having access to all the people was a way that I could just make a film, trying not to use any money... Um, there was nothing really stopping me, but once we got into the archive, it was always really random as well. Like, I worked with Lisa Savage, did all the archive on the film, um, and you'd find things that were like... A one clip of someone arriving at Calcutta opening night might have been, like, £3,000 to buy, um, and then there would be one clip... Like, we found the cheapest photo, I think, in the whole thing was a photo of John Cleese when they toured New Zealand. We found the New Zealand um, broadcast newspaper that had gone under and it was like $18 for worldwide rights for this one photo, whereas yeah. most photos would be like, you know, up to £500 or whatever. So it was, um, yeah, it was really... It was a bit like... She's a bit like being on the CIA, Lisa, a bit of a detective. Yeah. I'd go yeah. around to her house and she'd call people like museums late at night when New York was waking up and we'd track down and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah there was a scene in uh, 20,000 Days, the Nick Cave documentary that opened the festival, where we're actually with uh, Cave and the filmmakers in archives because they are now so important to filmmakers. OK, at this stage, we're going to open it up for questions. Uh, Gracie, I haven't seen the film yet, but uh, you mentioned my year with Marilyn before when you were chatting at the beginning, and I wonder if Michael ever had an experience like that, a formative experience, and I'm also really interested in what social class he came from. Yeah. Well, he, he was born into a really wealthy um, Scottish family, actually, and 
Um, he was sent away to boarding school when he was six years old to Switzerland because of his asthma, which was obviously just after the war. And he was sent to a... Um, at first, he was sent to a French-speaking school down the mountain. And they worked out his asthma was really bad that he had to then go to a German school. So by the time he was, like, 16, he then went to um, Pisa and the Sorbonne. So he spoke, you know, like, four languages. And he travelled around a lot. Um, and then he basically he went to New York... Um, to work on the stock exchange um, when Eisenhower had a stroke. That was a moment in it. So it was back in those days. And then he met this guy, Lou Schweizer, who, um, this is all in his book, who was a, uh, who owned um, tobacco factory. He was this really wealthy man. And he was married to this actress, Lucille Lottel, who um, he kind of wanted her to retire from acting. So he bought her a, her own theatre at their house, which is next to the Gershwins. And so it became, Lucille Lottel's quite a famous um, figure in New York and like the West End because she had this theatre. And so Michael's job was actually, he wanted to be a writer and he, he was meant to be minding the lighthouse for, for this guy, Lou Schweizer. And he said, oh, can you come to our house one day? Um, and then he just started working in the theatre. So basically people like Marilyn Monroe and all these, all these really famous people would come every weekend. There would be a six-week season, so they'd do one show a week. So he met people like Marilyn. And I think he was dating... James Dean's girlfriend or something. There was a story in this book. Um, yeah. Because um, he was obviously knew all the theatre girls. Yeah. So, so it was through that that he had the taste for theatre. And possibly beautiful women. He had a number of wives, didn't he? And yeah, he was married twice. Partners. And then he had um, a long-term girlfriend, Lyndall Hobbs. I think he always... Yeah, I think he still likes... You know, he, he likes women, but he doesn't... He's not, you know, like that kind of guy that likes women. I think he, he, he really like embraces, yeah, as you were saying, like intelligent women or meeting, you know, people like Naomi Watts and Anna Winter and, you know, Kate Moss and there's a whole range of um, girls who, you know, are quite successful. Yeah. And um, what struck me, you know, we mentioned this earlier, was how loyal his, he was to his friends, even then, even when some of them had let him down, he'd never down them. Uh, and how loyal they were to him. Are they still showing that loyalty? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people I interviewed had not seen him for a while, um, but he has a close circle of family and friends, and, you know, he's, every time he goes out, like, I remember one night we were out um, after we'd been at Jack Nicholson's all day, and he'd just taken me up there to show me Jack's house, and we went out to dinner, and I went to the bathroom, and there was someone sitting in my seat, and it was Elton John, because I kind of came and tapped him on the shoulder, like, who is this at the restaurant? And he said, oh, hi, it's Elton and I was like, hi, it's okay, you can sit there. So, you know, I think when he runs into people, um, he, you know, people embrace him and remember him. He's kind of still, yeah. So I think this film, in a way, has also recognised him. Um, he just recently, we were really happy, won the Laurence Olivier Award for Lifetime Achievement in April because he'd been really ill in LA when I was there a few months ago and he was in a wheelchair and, yeah, he went on stage and got his award, which is, I think was, yeah, we were quite... I think, that's, I think that's terrific. One of the very loyal friends has been Jack Nicholson, yeah, yeah. who got him into trouble on more than one occasion, I think. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, he and Jack knew each other for, like, yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of his closest friends, but at the time when I met Jack, I hadn't interviewed anyone, so I didn't get to do an interview with him. I had some... I mean, I wasn't allowed to take my camera into his house, cause, and also I hadn't met him before, so I left the camera in the car, but he was wearing a Rocky Horror T-shirt and... I sat with some Picassos on the leopard skin couch for a few hours and hit some golf balls. And 
Mm. You know? Who has questions? Stick your hands up. Come on, don't be shy. Is Nicole here, the producer? Nicole? No, I can't no, see No, there's, an, there's okay. another question behind oh, Lisa. Gracie, congratulations. I think it's a terrific film. I'm just wondering, has Michael seen it? And, and what did he make of it, listening to everybody talk about him? Yeah, well, I went over in July last year to show him the film and he um, and it was like before any of the graphics or sound or music or anything had been done to it and it was about half an hour longer and he liked it. He just wanted some less shots of him with the walking sticks and I think that was because he hadn't seen... He felt quite confronted by seeing himself now because um, he would call me and say, oh, I'm so pathetic and I'm like, no, you're not. You're like, this is how I met you and you're really cool and, you know, that's why I shot you, yeah, driving in the car a lot. Um, and then he came to the opening night um, in London at the London Film Festival where we premiered last year. And I remember I was out with him the night before and he was, yeah, I could see how, like, I was nervous as well, but he, yeah, he'd just gone out to this party and I had to take him home and say, go to bed, because I think he was so anxious he'd gone out on a <laughs> big night out. Um, and then he, yeah, he was calling me on the day saying, I don't know if I'll come. And I was like, you have to come. I've just spent three years making this film. Like, it'd be, you know... And of course he was there, and um, and then but at the end when we did the Q and A, I, I looked over at that when his name came up in the credits and he wasn't there, and I had this panic because I thought, oh my god, he hates it. But in actual fact, he went to the party which we were having down the road, so he didn't stay for the Q and A because he wanted to get out to the party so he could greet everyone. Um, and now he, and he was just in Italy last week. We went to uh, there was, we were playing in a festival there, so he went um, to that and. Yeah, watched the film and the people in Italy emailed us saying that, yeah, he stayed for the film and everyone clapped him. And So I think he, in a way he, like, you know, he wants to travel now and I think there's a small part of him that maybe enjoys the fact that people... You know, it's that thing when I, you, you get to the end of your career and people forget who you were and it's, unless it's, you know, marked in history or, or time or, you know, and I, I think also learning that he is such a... Not a hoarder, but he collects everything. I think it's the perfect thing for him to have this... It's like almost like another piece of memorabilia he's got now. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Let's take another question before we run out of time. Hello. Oh, um, it looks really great. I can't wait to see the film. Looks really good. I'm just wondering what you would like the audience to take away. Is there anything you'd want them to take away from after watching the film? Well, what I did think you want I, to say? Yeah, ideally it's a film about his legacy and, what, um, and all the amazing productions he did and all the risks he took to get things in the theatre and musicals to where they are today, like having the first nude show and all that kind of stuff, and that he broke so many boundaries. But I think him as a person, he really... I mean, he inspires me. Like, he, you know, he's like the first person I met who really doesn't want to die, and he wants to get out there every day and, and do stuff. And, you know, you see that he might have two walking sticks and everything's so hard, but, like, he was in Italy last week, you know, going around to things, talking to people, um, and he's just got such a... He hasn't really given up on, on things, you know? So I think yeah. that's what... Yeah. Yeah. Keep living life until till the end. We have one la time for one last question. Oh, hi. Um, so you interviewed uh, his son in the doco. I'm just wondering, are they very close? Yeah, he's close to all his... He's actually got um, two, three sons and a daughter, um, three from the first marriage and his son, Benji. I mean, he sees them all the time, um, especially Benji's travelling a lot. Um, but, yeah, he is really close with them. I think, um, yeah, I only interviewed the one son and one of the daughters is kind of in one scene. But they, they were there when he won his Olivier Award on stage with him. Yeah. I'm going to wrap this up now. Now, now this film is also in competition at the Sydney Film Festival and the results will be announced tonight. Gracie has won a number of awards which helped 
fund the film. So fingers crossed for Gracie tonight. Look for The Last Impresario when it opens on June 26th. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>